0: Here's your host, Dane Carlson. Welcome back. Jim Eldridge is the president and CEO of the Ada Jobs Foundation, an accredited economic development organization which serves the area of Ada, Oklahoma. Jim specializes in developing new programs to support rural entrepreneurship, technology development, and community-focused research. Prior to joining the Ada Jobs Foundation, Jim was the executive director of the Uptown 23rd District Association in Oklahoma City. Jim is a certified economic developer and holds his master's in regional and city planning from the University of Oklahoma. Jim, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm glad that we were finally able to connect after all these years and get together and talk a little bit. Yeah, no, I'm excited to see you again. And
1: I think I remember our last conversation in Fort Worth and um, getting to enjoy this part of the country and and talk a little bit about more of your experience and how you approach economic development. So very cool to see you again.
0: Before we do that, let's do, let's talk a little bit about uh, what you're up to. So sure. why don't you give us the a, a brief overview of Ada, Oklahoma? Because I'm assuming most of our listeners don't know where it is. Couldn't find it on a map. Tell us about that a little bit, and then we'll talk about the Ada Jobs Foundation. Sure. So I'll give you the best background of Ada I can. And so Ada is
1: a town of about 17,000 people. Uh, We're located in southern Oklahoma, about an hour southeast of Oklahoma City, about two hours north of Dallas-Fort Worth metro area. Um, We are the home to the Chickasaw Nation's headquarters, and they have an area that covers a big portion of southern Oklahoma. Um, But that's a big deal for us, and they're a major local employer and major local economic driver. Uh, We're also home to the headquarters of Legal Shield, which is a, a company that's sort of moving more and more to the legal tech space. Uh, we are also, uh, home to East Central University, which is a public regional university that enrolls about uh, 3,500, 4,000 students or so. Um, but Ada is a, just, it's a very, very unique place. Uh, you know, I grew up in Oklahoma city, but I had some family that grew up in the area. And, um, for being a town, that's the size of Ada, it sort of feels like a town two or three times its size in terms of the impact and the activity and the amount of talent that we have here. Um. But it's, it's certainly not a large town. It sort of is, um, almost feels a little bit like an island or something, right? So, um, operates very differently than anywhere I've ever been. But it's, it's been a very interesting place to work. Um, I'll also add that Ada is home to an EPA uh, Office of Research and Development Facility named the Robert S. Kerr Environmental Research Center. So, it's one of a few, um, what they call, ORD facilities for the EPA that really focuses on um, doing new research and development, you know, for the federal government. So, really interesting collection of people that come in and out of Ada with PhDs, with impressive professional backgrounds. And you keep saying, "Well, why? How did you end up in Ada, right?" And it's it's been a really cool experience to meet some of these people and learn what they do. So,
0: that's fascinating. All of that in a town of about what seventeen thousand people. Correct. I w- I was really surprised. I like to you know pull up the Wikipedia article on cities where my where my guests are and the article on Ada was very interesting usually it it sort of describes the the weather and the environment and the history and and uh, a little bit about the economics but it says right there in wikipedia it says Ada has a diversified economy and i thought that's phenomenal for a community of 17000 but now that you've said this that you have these very large organizations headquartered there Uh, And you have this research institute and the university. You have capital, you have talent, you have education, you have all that. So you work for the Ada Jobs Foundation, and Mm -hmm. uh, it sounds like from the title, it sounds like a workforce development organization, but I'm assuming that's not what it is. So why don't you tell us about it? No. So we're a 501c3 nonprofit economic development organization.
1: Um, And, you know, really, I think at the time it was founded in 1998, and at that time, um, manufacturing was really changing in rural america and especially in you know what would be considered like the rural south so a lot of southern cities had an incredible amount of success and i could you know, talk for ages about this of uh, recruiting industrial companies uh, to these you know, kind of sunbelt towns you know maybe you know 1950s, 60s, 70 but by the 1990s there were a couple of large manufacturing plants in ada that shut down uh, which totally went against you know, the long, you know, community narrative of having some really stable and good economic success. And so, the um, the community leadership at the time and several people that are very active in the business community founded the Ada Jobs Foundation as a way to complement existing efforts with Ada Main Street and the Ada Chamber of Commerce. And they wanted a modern, you know, maybe more metro-style economic development organization. Um, and we were also formed with the uh, passage of a economic development sales tax called Proposition 2. So it's a quarter cent sales tax dedicated to economic development. Um, if any of our listeners are from Texas, it's very similar to like a Texas B-type corporation, but we're technically our own private nonprofit. Um, and so the two things together were really designed to create quality jobs in the community. Um, and so as I've started here and worked through this, I take a very... Um, very broad interpretation of this idea of a quality job, right? And so, yes, we create jobs and yes, we create, you know, more tax base and wealth. But I've really thought about what does that mean to someone, right? What what does a job mean to someone's life? You know, it's the people you work with that are your friends that you see every day. It's the ability to have a a lifestyle that allows you to, you know, take care of your family or go travel or fund education or do the things that you really want to do or support the people around you. And so it's, I, I hate the term lit work play, you know, but I really do think that the idea of a quality job um, is something we can go much, much deeper on and think about, yes, jobs mean money, but they also mean, what does that mean for a community to have this quality job there? Right. So. Mm-hmm.
0: So how did you end up in Ada?
1: So it, it, it and I can kind of go full circle on this. I didn't realize the full family history till I moved to Ada, but um, my grandparents actually met in Ada in the late 1920s. Uh, My grandmother is going to school at East Central University to become a teacher, which was a very common, you know, thing for women back then coming to ECU. And my grandfather, I grew up about uh, 20 miles to the west in a town called Stratford and grew up you know, on a pecan and and peach orchard. And um, anyways, they had met in Ada and um, the Great Depression hit and they moved to Oklahoma City. So my grandmother never finished her college education in Ada and um you know they found work in oklahoma city and that's where my dad grew up and that's that's where i grew up but um I, I didn't know that full history and so when i grew up in oklahoma city i grew up uh in kind of a very urban part of oklahoma city and a part of oklahoma city that um was very hard hit by an economic recession in the 1980s and so all i knew i think were older neighborhoods where there were a lot of a lot of vacant buildings and a lot of empty lots and everyone sort of was gone right and i was like oh well this must be normal like this is just this sure. is a normal way that cities work right so um then i i went to college at ou in norman and got my degree in cultural anthropology and i decided that um it would be a wonderful idea to move to new york city at the height of the uh, 2008 kind of 2009 economic recession right because obviously you know that's just a normal thing for a city to do right is you know exactly yeah have people leave and lose jobs and all that sort of thing and uh so i lived in new york city for about a year and it was interesting you know i call it kind of like my study abroad year but i had an opportunity to really think about well how do cities work and and what really drives a local economy and so it gave me a lot of food for thought and i realized that there are these really interesting things happening in these really big questions about what happens to cities and i was like there's all this opportunity back in oklahoma what am i doing in new york i should be back in oklahoma like i could be doing all these things right so i got really excited and i got my master's in city planning um, again from ou and uh connected to the job in ada thinking I, I kept wanting to be a city planner like that was always my goal I like i want to i want to become a planner and um I had terrible luck at actually finding a job in planning. And uh, along the way, I worked in economic development. I um, worked for the Saptown 23rd District, which was a really, really great experience, kind of Main Street style um, economic development. And the job opened up in Ada, and I knew some people there. And I said, hey, this sounds like a great gig. And they offered me the job. And I'd never lived in a small town. I didn't know small towns worked, but I thought, well, this sounds different and interesting and no one I know is moving to a small town to work. So yeah, let's do it. And that's how it came to Ada. It was literally, they had a job opening and it paid well
0: enough, had a school and they were willing Mm -hmm. to take me and sounded fun. Wow. I'd imagine that was quite the cultural shock. What were the things that surprised you about the small town? So I think one of the big things that I didn't expect, I think this is just my perception,
1: but If you've never lived in a small town before, I assume small towns were these really beautiful, quaint little places where you have white picket fences and everybody knows their neighbor. And it's a very kind of like 1950s idyllic sort of thing. And there's a little bit of that here, but frankly, it was a lot like the neighborhoods I grew up in in Oklahoma City, you know, kind of that were been knocked back a few notches. Right. There was more, I guess, um, houses weren't well maintained there was more visible poverty in some neighborhoods and very some very very nice houses and neighborhoods but it it was all kind of concentrated right there and i was like well wait a second you know there's there's this huge need for housing and there's this huge need for neighborhood development and you could really see there were a couple of neighborhoods that had a lot of economic distress that were just very very visible right um and that was i think one big shock to me and i thought Oh well wow. I mean there obviously there's wealth, and obviously there's poverty, but it's it's really visible here. I mean you can't just hide it and sweep it underneath the rug like maybe you can in a large city right mm-hmm. um those neighborhoods are right next to downtown or they're right next to where they go, so I think the really cool thing about that that I've seen is that means that um everybody's seeing it in small town, the mayor's seeing it, city council seeing it, they all kind of know what's going on and it's letting us think, I think it's some really creative ways about what does it take to support a local economy? What kinds of houses and neighborhoods do people need to live and thrive in? And how can we help the people that are here, you know, raise their quality of life? So I think that was one thing. Um, Another thing that I noticed is that working, especially in a metro area, there's just such a large capacity for volunteers and people that want to contribute to the community, right? There are people that have spare time and stable jobs and I remember when I worked for Uptown 23rd, we would say, oh, we need volunteers for this. We'd have 15 people within an hour, right? And they would show up and they would do these great things. And you're like, where did all these people come from out of the woodwork? The people just, you know, it, it was so easy to get people recruited to events and to things that were happening. And I noticed that the smaller and smaller you go, there's only so many people that are really active volunteers. And so the volunteer base here gets stretched really, really thin and people can kind of sometimes work in smaller silos. Um, and so when we do something, we kept saying like, okay, well, we're going to do this. And all these people are going to show up, say an entrepreneurship networking hour, right? And um, we'd get like two people or one person. and I'd be like, where are all the people? And so we had to go much deeper, and we had to be much more intentional. And we had to build much stronger relationships to really bring out the people that I think would benefit from some of our programs or services. But On the other hand, it's allowed us to build much, I think, stronger and deeper relationships with these people, right? So it's more close-knit. Whereas I think in a city, sometimes you just get people that are kind of washing in and out of different organizations and committees. And there's just always people around, so that's okay. And I think working in this small town in particular, um, you really have to build more of that one-on-one kind of relationship with a lot of different people. So let's talk about that. How do you
0: go about doing that?
1: So I think you have to figure out how they communicate, right? Um, there's a generation here that wants you to pick up the phone and make an appointment and go down and meet with them one-on-one. And sometimes the first meeting is not the meeting that gets the result, right? And so they want to really to really get to know you before they're going to trust you, right? They want to see that you're going to be there and you're going to stick around. And, you know, they'll kind of look at you first, kind of like, some people are just really warm and opening, but open about how they relate. But some people, it takes a little bit of time for them to kind of build up that trust. And they know the people around them, they've known their entire life, right? They, they've worked with them for decades. And here I am as this new guy from a big city coming in who's an economic developer. And um, in some cases, it's taken years to develop, I think, a good relationship. But I think nothing's made a bigger impact than picking up the phone and say, hey, why don't I come down and, and talk to you about XYZ? Um, And I think people here really appreciate that face-to-face interaction. It's, I think it's a culture that thrives face-to-face, mm-hmm. which has certainly made the COVID era more challenging, right? Um, But in general, I think
0: that kind of one-on-one communication really works well here. You mentioned seeing these neighborhoods in the community and noticing the disparity between the, the, the poor areas and the richer areas and their proximity to Main Street and and all of that kind of stuff. And as you say that, you sound to me like a more like a planner than like an economic developer. So can you talk about how your education, your planning education, how that has helped you and changed how you see things and interact with economic development in general?
1: Sure. And, and you know, there's always the old joke that no one wakes up one morning and decides to be an economic developer, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's not an obvious profession and in some ways planning really isn't either, but if you're interested in cities and if you're interested in how they work, planning feels like a very logical step to go in. And, um, you know, I think what's interesting about that is I've been asking the same questions, but the way they get about how do cities work and what is, you know, what is the nature of poverty and what is the nature of wealth and and how do economies get structured? Right. And it was really interesting. I went through a economic gardening class with chris gibbons um several years ago and he was framing things in a way where all of a sudden it just clicked for me like talking about how commodity economies could sometimes produce more poverty than an innovation economy right what does it mean to be in a place where um you know your exports kind of die off and the and the town really kind of closes in on itself and it's interesting is chris gibbons is also a graduate of ou's planning program you know, from the 1970s, right? And Mm -hmm. um, all that to say is, I think the nice thing about a planning background is it teaches you to think very broadly. And I think it teaches you to think in very spatial terms, right? How different parts of a city or geography relate to each other, right? You know, what's the flow of traffic or information or something like that? And so, and I think really more than anything an anthropology background has given me the idea to say these neighborhoods and these places have very unique characters and, you know, the culture of a place really matters and do you have a closed culture or an open culture, do things, um, you know, how do people communicate with each other? Right. You know, what's, what's sort of the, the common cultural belief here. And so thinking about neighborhoods as unique places, unique cultures, I think is really helpful, but like many economic developers, you know, I started out and you'd go to a local company on a BRD visit and you'd say, well, what's going on here? You know, what's, what's the biggest challenge. And, you know, there, if you're in this field, you know, the first thing they're going to say is talent. And the last thing we're going to say is talent. They're, we don't have enough workers. You know, the people here don't stick around. Um, and as we started going through this, I, I, my original thought was, okay, well, obviously we just need a better better education, right? We'll give them the yeah. skills that can go work. So we met with our education partners and I was like, oh, these places are great at educating people. Listen, you know, they have great programs. They win awards. The people that come out of here have excellent skills. But then we looked at, oh, but there's two or three people that have... Go through each program in a year, right? And so our pipeline was so small. And what's been interesting, and what's I've learned, you know, kind of looking at this is um, there's these things about the way that our city's built and the way that our city functions that can really hinder economic development in the sense that if someone's car breaks down and they live more than walking distance away or biking distance away from work, they may miss work that day, and then the manufacturing plant or the company that employs them you know, may not be able to complete, you know, something for that shift and then they have to scramble to bring things on. You know, if our communities don't offer a lot of you know uh, good opportunities for health or safety, you know, that can really impact the way that people work. And so we start to think about all these things that where someone lives can really impact, you know, their contribution to a local economy, right? Um, and so I think even in a small town, it's really, really important to think You can have kind of a blue-collar neighborhood that really supports itself and really supports the people there, and it's a wonderful place to be, right? But it may not look shiny and polished and and clean, right? Conversely, you can have a very affluent neighborhood where everything looks perfect and the lawns are mowed and everything's great, Um, but you know maybe there's there no one knows their neighbors, and maybe in an event or crisis, you know things really falter there or or things really break down and. people struggle so herbert Gans, i think was someone that wrote about this a lot as a sociologist you know talking about these different neighborhoods but i think still the same lessons apply where we've got to really think about how a neighborhood functions and how that affects where companies can find their people right because ultimately the workers have
0: to live somewhere so right so how does that work how does that fit into what it is that you do on a daily basis though i mean i think this is super interesting yeah I, I just kind of wonder how do you apply that directly So for instance, you know, we have a manufacturer
1: that has told us through a BRD visit that he really struggles to get people um to work. You know, some of his employees have trouble, you know, car trouble. Some of them get to work on a skateboard or a bicycle, and it's not always reliable. And they'll often skip work if the weather's bad or if they, you know, have you know, wake up too late or something like that. We have very limited transit in rural areas. We have, you know, kind of a uh what we call a call right system, you know, you call the number and schedule an appointment. Several hours, you know, may go by between the call and scheduling, pick pickup and going back and forth. So, it's really used by people that may have medical appointments or something like that. It's really not used by people to get to work. And so, you know, knowing people in the community and knowing, you know, this is a system run by our county and our city works with our county. You know, I'll talk to our city manager about this and say, wouldn't it be great if we could figure out this thing? And so. We're currently assessing, could this Colorado system have a set route, you know, and could they, you know, maybe pick up people for a shift and deliver them there at the same time every day? Uh, You know, could we use this as a way to generate more money for the Colorado system so that, you know, um, they could do more with those funds and those things coming in. So I think it's really just thinking about connecting the pieces that are there and saying, We have a partner, we have an opportunity, we have a program. How do we fund it? How does this come together? There's a lot of building things from scratch. You know, there's a lot of like, this doesn't exist, but let's build it
0: and let's try it. Right. Then, okay, that makes perfect sense. Many of the tactics that are developed in small communities can work in larger communities, but some of the tactics that are developed in the larger communities don't work as well in the smaller communities. So do you have any examples of things like that?
1: yeah and i think we see so we're very invested in entrepreneurship we're very very invested in trying to spur innovation as a rural community and you know when over the past 10 years as we've looked to entrepreneurship development we've seen a lot of really interesting things happen in larger cities right or even metro area cities like you know i think tulsa oklahoma is a great example of a great ecosystem they built really in the last decade right and if you are a metro city you know if you're a Tulsa or a Little Rock or, uh, you know, Kansas City or whatever, there's sort of a playbook you can follow if you choose to. And so you can say, we'll start the co work space and then we'll encourage the accelerator and we'll bring in the mentorship network and, you know, we'll do all these things. And what we've realized is that we can use that for inspiration. But if we tried to copy that one for one, um, there's issues of capacity where there's only so many people available to do the work, there's issues of expertise. Um, Funding can be a challenge when you're trying to fund a lot of things all at once, right? And so you're thinking, okay, well, if we can only do one, let's do the co-work space, right? But with that, you may not necessarily build that kind of critical mass you would want to see when all these things coalesce and happen together, right? So it it's taken a different approach where maybe we have to think slightly differently about how do we build this community? And yes, we understand why this accelerator program works, but what is it really doing? And I think one of the biggest challenges is trying to create a steady flow of new, uh, scalable technology startups in the rural area. Right. That's sort of the, um, the biggest upside to an entrepreneurship program, I think at any community, but especially a rural community. And it's also one of the things that like is just so hard to develop because it's so time intensive. It's so resource intensive. And there's comparatively, you know, 10 to one, you know, there's going to be lifestyle businesses to technology startups. Right. Right. Um, And so we're embarking on this experiment, but I think it's sort of taken as uh, a given fact that if you have a large research university in a metropolitan city, you're going to have people that develop technology and start companies, right? Maybe a small number, but there's sort of enough of a a critical mass to where you can design a program around them and get things going. Um, It's really for us saying, okay, we thought we were here. Now let's take three steps back and realize that we're actually way, 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 farther back from where we expected and and let's say okay if there isn't a technology startup who are the people that would start a startup and what resources do they need to build their idea right so
0: it's recalibrating so right instead of just uh following the model starting an incubator just because everybody else is doing it and because the the books say to do it you're realizing that the scale of it is wrong in your community and so you look at it and you say what what is it really doing? What services is it really providing? And how can we add on to that or do that? Or how can we facilitate it so we would get to the point where we would actually need it? So you're then able to look at it and go back and work backwards and find those points where you can make an impact and then move it forward. That's a excellent piece of advice, I think.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of building blocks and recognizing that if you build block by block, it may be slow,
0: but at least you have a foundation. Right. Right. As opposed to taking a big hunk of money and uh starting up an incubator and wondering again why there's nobody there why nobody's showing up oh let's talk about your book choices you okay, gave sure. me some you gave me some a list a couple of books that are that sound phenomenal in search of respect selling crack in el barrio uh, can what is this book that you are that you're recommending it sounds like uh, how to sell crack
1: you know First off, if your goal is to sell crack, I wouldn't recommend reading a book, especially not a book about dealers in the 1980s. But, um, <laughs> you know, this is a just an incredible book. And I love going back and yeah, I never reread books, but this is okay. one of those books that I've actually purchased more than once because I've given it away. And I'm like, oh, I got to read that again. Let me buy it. Um, but this book really inspired me to look at, you know, studying anthropology. It really inspired me to look at studying cities. And I connected to it so much because like, again if if you have a city that's you know kind of this empty downtown with a bunch of vacant buildings and you know there's drug dealers and everything else around you think well this is this is kind of like that story right this is this is what's normal mm-hmm. but really it was a very specific place in time and um East Harlem in the 1980s was a very specific place in time and it, it was such an interesting snapshot to see what was that and what did that look like and who are, you know, who are these two, you know, crack dealers getting by day-to-day? What was interesting was they talked about drug dealing as a and this is before the wire came out as a show, but it was drug dealing as a business, right? You know, what what are the economics of drug dealing? As it turns out in the book they're actually pretty poor. You don't make as much money as you think dealing drugs and there's more risk. And but the book really delved into why would someone deal drugs and not participate in the economy, right? Like why wouldn't they get white collar or blue-collar jobs or white-collar jobs and really they were saying the story of this is how a city like New York City has changed where there used to be manufacturing jobs that people you know maybe they were you know the children of immigrants from you know Um, another country or maybe like in the case of Puerto Rico you know they're American citizens that come in from a different place or maybe it's the great migration of African, African Americans to the industrial you know Midwest or North and we had these blue collar jobs that were good paying jobs and provided an opportunity for people to work. And um, really, this is the generation where that you moved to New York City, but those jobs weren't really the same and they weren't really there, right? And I think that's what's happening now in a lot of rural areas where it used to be manufacturing was the pathway to a good job, especially in the rural South, right? I mean, we were kind of like, let's move the uh, Solo Cup plant. You know, They're going to open up a plant outside of Chicago and they're going to open it at Ada, right? And it's going to provide Good manufacturing jobs for all these people that would have been farm workers a, a generation ago. And now some of these jobs are getting harder and harder to fill and our manufacturing employment in the long term is declining. Um, so anyways, that's, that's one thing that's really interesting about it. But I think the other thing is it shows, you know, what's sort of the negative space of economic development, right? Like where do things, what happens when things don't work? You know, how do people build systems around where the economy should be? And I think, you know, the uh, black market kind of, you know, drug dealing economy is an economy, but it's definitely an economy that's existing to fill the space where there's not that manufacturing economy. It's not that kind of, you know, uh, opportunity for people to get a job where they feel like meets, you know, their expectations and they have respect. And people look at them and say, oh man, you have all this money and you're doing all these great things, right? It turns out they were pay- they were really taking a pay cut to be a crack dealer, but... It came with so much, like, you status. looked cool doing it. Yeah, yeah. right. And, and there was so much machismo in it. It's like, yeah, like, I'm a crack dealer. But, you know, frankly, they would have been better off taking the trade and holding down a normal job, right? So.
0: That reminds me, in the book Freakonomics, there's a chapter mm-hmm. entitled uh, Why Do Drug Dealers Live With Their Mothers. Yeah. And I, and I think it's, it's probably about the same. So that's interesting. I'll have to look into that. And then you have a second book, uh, Rationality and Power. Mm. That is about a, a transit project in Denmark. What did? Yeah, why? Why do you like that book?
1: So I have to say that ins and outs, and especially if you're in this world of you know cities and governments and economic development and planning, it, it can be a dry read to read the excruciating detail of a failed transit project in Denmark, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but essentially, it's this amazing case study of what we see every day. In that, if you think that something is rational in yeah, the right idea the, and the best thing to go and you present it, why do we get these outcomes that are incredibly irrational, right? And I think the author was really delving into this transit project was supposed to be this great idea and this great vision and it, and it was going to be, you know, cause all these great changes, but years dragged on of bureaucracy and local politics and horse trading and everything else and the end result was kind of mediocre and they were like, how do we go from this wonderful idea of this rational future to something that really didn't meet anyone's expectations right and i think what was really cool about it is this was sort of applying kind of critical studies to the idea of community development or planning and it, this is something that i think we as economic developers deal with every day for these community projects and incentives or these developments where we know it's great we've done the research we've looked at it and even if you can convince every city council member every member of the public sometimes projects don't go to plan and um I think it's important to take a step back and realize that, you know, having the right answer and being rational isn't everything, right? You know, there's going to be this whole other beast of people will perceive stuff in different ways. And we have all these different actors in the city and a community, you know, getting involved. And sometimes it's about who has power, not about who, uh, you know, who's right. And I remember right around the time I was reading this in grad school, I had a professor who's the, his name is Fernando Costa, and he's the assistant city manager i believe in fort worth at this point um and he was talking about how he had um sort of lost down on a, a project right he he was on the wrong side of they were going to build a new highway call it a parkway and from a planning point of view it was a terrible decision right it was going to increase congestion and it was going to um really hamper community development and, and do all the things that can sometimes happen with a large you know highway or interstate project um and it was really interesting because when I heard him talk, I was thinking, here's this guy who's very accomplished, wonderful track record, decades of experience. And he talked about a project that sometimes doesn't always go the way you think, even though you know that you think you're in the position where you're right. It can sometimes, there are other other things going on. And I think that's such an important lesson for us to learn that um, even if we're right, that doesn't always mean we're, we're being effective. And I think sometimes we need to think, More broadly, about what does it mean to be effective and how do we really um, carry out the things that we know are good for economies or good for people in our, our communities, right?
0: Absolutely. And I think that requires us to, like you mentioned, sit down with people and understand what it is that they need and what it is that they want. That's fascinating. Well, Jim, it has been excellent having you on here today. If our listeners would like to reach out to you and maybe ask you for some advice how should they reach out to you
1: sure so um linkedin is a great place to connect with me professionally um, I, I assume you'll put my linkedin link up there um you can reach out to me on twitter i'm not an active twitter poster i'm an active twitter reader at this point but um at jim Eldridge is my twitter handle and you can also visit the growada.com website and uh email me always happy to help um you'll find my direct contact on that staff about page and happy to talk to anyone that wants to um, connect or learn
0: more. So, Excellent. Well, Jim, it's been great. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Fine. Talk to you later. All right. Thanks.